Broadcast out of New York City, you're listening to Prescriptions for Health on the Progressive Radio Network. On Monday, May 19th, 2014, I'm Dr. Len Saputo. And I'm registered nurse Vicki Saputo. Thank you for joining us on Prescriptions for Health on the Progressive Radio Network on the first and third Monday of every month from 10 to 11 a.m. Eastern Time and from 7 to 8 a.m. Pacific Time. And remember that our shows are available 24-7 on prn.fm and drsaputo.com. Today you'll hear Nurse Vicki's 2020 health tips at 20 after and 20 to the hour. And we've got another really good show for you today that's going to include first impressions that can be harmful to your health. And what vitamin increases survival in cancer? And why is your ability to get in and out of a chair an important aspect of your health? And what can we learn from analyzing earwax? What is What's medicine coming to? And what's more important than blood sugar in predicting complications in type 2 diabetes? This might surprise you some. Well, first impressions are pretty powerful and they're lasting. And this can even carry over to science and to doctor-patient relationships. Remember what it was like when we first met? What? You don't remember that impression? It must have lasted. I didn't think it was so great. You didn't. <laughs> Is that right? What was? Well, the... I guess you did. <laughs> I sure did. I remember I went out and got a haircut and I got a new jacket and I wanted to really impress you. But as I recall, you asked me out for the next date. Yeah, I needed a date. Oh! (laughs) (laughs) All right. Touche. Well, some people are branded for life, even if they change over time. That's true. I remember one time going to, well, when I was first starting out in the acting business, and I did an audition for this casting director, and I was kind of a novice at it. And even over time, and after I took all these different classes and mm-hmm. everything he still thought that i was wasn't any good <laughs> <laughs> That's no great. and i got a few commercials through him but i mean he just had this set in his mind and he didn't realize that i was growing and that i was improving with time we do that about a lot of things well there are studies that can show previous studies are not correct after all mm-hmm. and yet people are stuck and they won't change their mind they mm-hmm. continue on as if the new studies weren't even done right. a lot of times right and it applies to a lot of things in medicine, too. And when we look at things like the mammogram, which we just assume is something we need, and it's imprinted in women's heads very, very deeply that mammograms are something they need because if they don't, they're putting themselves at great risk for developing breast cancer or for dying from breast cancer. And, you know, we have reported on this so many times, and yet people just ignore it. Remember and we, what, we even give them an option. We tell them about breast thermography and they just ignore it. It's the same thing with the photon stimulator as opposed to taking drugs and the bioenergy test versus lab like tests. Well, we imprint these things. And when they imprint in our minds, we make a decision about something and it stays there. It's sort of like ducks imprinting their mother. If it turns out that it's a wolf, okay, that they see as the first thing, they'll follow the wolf around. It's, uh, it's, it's the same thing with people and things like this. Well, I want to mention a few other things that, can, that come to my mind when I think of this, like uh, intracellular magnesium versus serum magnesium So what's the, what's the deal there? Well, intracellular is when they scrape it off the inside of your cheek. Well, they take actual tissue, and then they shoot an electron beam at it, and it fluoresces. And when it does, you can measure the amount of fluorescence of magnesium and tell how much magnesium is inside the cell. Now, why is that important? Because doctors still don't do that test. What we do is we measure what's in the serum. And the serum, of course... That's in the blood. Yes. 
and the and the amount that's in the blood is only one percent, and what's in the cell is something that we don't measure. And ninety nine percent of the magnesium in the human body is there; it's inside <laughs> the cell or in bone, in a place where you can't get at it. So why, you know, so we could go on, I guess, about all these things about why, but but they mm-hmm. just get stuck on doing it the way that they're used to doing it, just like with the live blood cell analysis versus dead blood cell analysis. Well, the hospitals we do, well, do the dead blood cell. They don't call it dead blood well, cell Well, doctors analysis. in general do that. What do they do? They stick your finger. They smear the blood out on a, on a slide. They let it dry. They stain it with a certain kind of stain. Then they look at it under the microscope. And admittedly, we can learn a lot from that, and it's a good test. But why wouldn't we want to look at living blood cells when you and can see, what see they them do. on a video moving around and seeing you can see what them they in do, real time. if they clump together or not, or if there's parasites in there or whatever's going on? You see a lot of things in a live blood cell analysis that you will not learn from a dried blood cell analysis. And, and why do we not or why do we have this resistance to it? If you talk to a doctor about doing a live blood cell analysis, they kind of look at you like, well, why would you want to do that? And it's sort of like, well, well if wouldn't you like to see one? If you've ever seen one, you know why you would want to do one. Well, and you, and you do learn a lot. And the problem with a lot of these things that we take for granted is that we do them instead of the other, and then we don't do research on the other. How much research is there on live blood cell analysis? Well, Not that, that much compared to what's done in the traditional dead cell analysis. Well, that happens with a lot of things in medicine, like with vaccines, for example, and uh-huh. the flu vaccine. Many times they don't want to do the tests to compare having having it as opposed to not having it because they think you need it so much and that it would be malpractice to not have it. Yeah, and yet there are communities where the vaccine isn't given and that should be compared. And of course, in the case of the flu vaccine, that's when you really look at that and you and it takes a lot to look at that in the mainstream literature because most of it's all pro-vaccine. And so you can read all these articles, but when you do that like the Institute of Medicine did, they come up with a conclusion that's quite a bit different than what is in the mainstream view or what's in the viewpoint of the CDC or the FDA. Well, look what happens when a person's admitted to the hospital or they go to the ER. The first thing they try to do is talk them into getting a flu shot. Oh, that or... Uh, or are there any of their immunizations. Right. Some of that's about money, but some of that's because they really believe this information because the first impression was it started with smallpox. The vaccine, they thought, wiped out the disease. And maybe it did and maybe it didn't. You know, there's and most people would say, well, you really doubt that? And then there's this part of you that comes forward and says you doubt the, the actual pillars of medicine. And there's an emotional response that says it has to be right because everybody believes it. And then you look at, at That's some of that the, first impression. Yeah. And so you look at the at some of the sites that talk about saying that vaccines can be a problem and that maybe most of them shouldn't be given. And you start to get into a place where there's a lot of resistance because that initial imprinting that you had sticks with that. And then that stays with you pretty much the rest of your life. And then it just keeps carrying on that the reason that we don't have smallpox anymore is because people right. get, the, or polio. get the vaccines. And, and you polio. say, well, that's a given. That's for sure. And yet when you, you look at the data carefully, it's not that convincing. And, and it it's, it's almost sounds like you're a heretic. When you talk like that. But what I say is, let's look at the, at the data. Let's assess it. If it really shows that things are, are accurate like that, uh, like people believe when they imprint on something, fine. Let it become a rule of medicine, but present the data. It shouldn't just be, well, we all know that vaccines are useful, which is exactly the position that we take. 
And I say, let's bring it back to science and take a look at it without having an imprint that says a negative thing about it. Okay, then there's also chemotherapy versus some of the alternatives, like artemisinin, for example. Oh, sure. There's, there I are probably a hundred things you can do or more in uh, alternative medicine that can support people doing better with cancer uh, that don't involve using chemotherapy, particularly when you're looking at stage four cancers, where the best treatment has about a 2.3% survival rate at five years, despite all the things that we do. You mean like chemo and radiation? Chemo, radiation, and surgery. surgery at, for a solid tumor like lung cancer or pancreatic cancer or kidney cancer, at five years, there are only about 2.3% of people who are alive at that time, no matter what you do. That's not a very good track record. And yet there are other things that could be added to that treatment that can, that can do things that make a difference. Or what about things that could be done instead? Well... I think that's true, too, but we don't even look at that. In fact, in our research... Especially because people are panicked. It's like, oh, my God, I've got cancer. Yeah. Do something right now. Get it out. Do it. Do chemotherapy it or radiate it. Get it out of me. Well, that's right. And so we don't look at the facts so much as we look at we want to get better and we want to have some belief in something. Well, people are also afraid to take time to research it and to study what alternatives might be because they're in a panic and yeah. they want to hurry up and get it out of there. Well... I understand that on the part of the patient. What I don't understand is on the part of the oncologist who says, oh, if it's not in our mainstream literature, it's no good. And my statement is, well, if it is in your mainstream literature, it's probably not that good. Because if you want to look at bad research, look at the research that's not scientific. Look at the, the research in chemotherapy. There you're looking at comparing one chemotherapy to another chemotherapy. You're not looking at a control mm -hmm. where you have one group you treat and the other group you don't treat. Uh, and until you do that, you're not doing a comparative analysis that is acceptable as good, a good scientific method. And yet we have these other things that are a lot less profitable. That when you know money comes into this a lot, and the brainwashing of the doctor is huge in medical training, and the pharmaceutical industry is brilliant at how it brings things across, brings things opinions across, and imprint them on doctors, particularly when a new drug comes out. And they don't really present it in a, in a scientific way, as they hardly ever do. And yet many times, for example, and I've heard this on TV shows and everything when they try to talk about things that might be alternative medicine or herbs and stuff like that. And they say, well, always ask your doctor oh, yeah, right. if there's a, um, an interaction between the medication and the, and the herb and the dangers of it. Well, most doctors haven't studied the herbs and the alternative mm -hmm. treatments. And like many times, you'll have patients or people from the website that will ask you questions, for example, like artemisinin. Mm -hmm. Now, you're not their doctor, so you cannot give them advice. Yeah, and I don't. So you tell them to discuss it with their doctors. Well, what well, are their doctors going to know about it? Well, if, they've, if they've read our website and listened to our website and done their own research, they're going to know more than the doctor's going to know. Probably, most of the time. And when they ask me, about that particular uh, herb, artemisinin, uh, I send them articles from the mainstream literature that uh, are very interesting that their and are scientific. That the doctors would have more of a chance of, of respecting because For that it comes reason. from mainstream. Sure. We, we look at a, a website like Green Med Info, a great website by Sayer G., that has that you can join. It costs a couple hundred dollars a year, and they have tremendous volumes of research 
particularly in complementary and alternative approaches for things like cancer. What's and you Sayer can, G? It's the name of a person oh, okay. who has a website that, that I just mentioned that I think is exceptional in, in how it collects so much information. He's got like 30,000 papers from the scientific literature, and he's categorized them into different groups so that when, for example, you want to make a recommendation to an oncologist and you want to come up with something like curcumin and say that's something that would be valuable in this particular setting or worth a try because it's safe and it might do some good, you can come up with 60 papers and say, read these now. This is scientific data. It's published in the mainstream literature. Digest that and then tell me whether or not you think it's a good idea. Most of the time we get so one-sided in how we look at what we want to do as a treatment, particularly in oncology, that we don't really want to take the time to look at what we call these minor adjunctive things that aren't minor at all, particularly for stage 4 cancers, where I told you the five-year survival rates are in the range of 2 to 3%. Well, the other thing, too, is that people are are so geared toward taking drugs for things versus a healthy lifestyle. Oh, that's so right. That's and a huge always, thing. Yeah, they're always looking for the for the medicine or the drug. Or Some people are even like that with herbs, that there's got to be something to take. Well, it, anything but do the job yourself. Lifestyle, as we're saying, is, is the most po- powerful medicine in the universe. So pay attention to the style in which you live your life. That's sort of like our mantra. And it's true. I mean, look at what happens if you just change vitamin D levels in cancer. We're going to talk about that in the next section here and how important that can be. Or if you do exercise and you have cancer, uh, all, or you, you get more sleep or you get less sleep. These all have a profound effect that's major. And we're not saying that there's not a time and a place for drugs. No. The 2.3% of people, okay, who do survive five years are happy for their drugs. And, and it's good to have hope. But it comes at a high financial price and with a lot of morbidity and with mortality as well. So I say what we need is an open mind to consider both sides of the story rather than just look at one side, which has to do with that first imprint we have uh, when when we're learning about medical care. Yeah, and so back to this first impression thing and how how powerful and lasting those can be. If a person looks healthy Mm -hmm. when they go into the doctor's office, the doctor needs to be aware that just because they look healthy doesn't mean that that's right. I mean, those are sometimes the people that walk out the doctor's office and have a heart attack on the front steps. Well, that's right. That's where we talk about this wellness buffer thing, you know. Perfect health is on one end of a spectrum. Death is on the other end of the spectrum. And as you lose your good health, you move towards death. Somewhere in the middle there, but not sooner, you start to have symptoms, which means you can lose 30, 40, 50% of an organ and still be functioning uh, in the lifestyle you're accustomed to, which might not be too active. However, when you are at a place where you're just about to have symptoms, it's much different than when you have perfect health because you could have lost this whole buffer mm-hmm. of the 20, 30, 40% of organ function. So our job is to try and figure out how do we push people from a place where they still feel well back to a place where they have more perfect health. That's the wellness buffer. And of course, we talked about oxygen utilization uh, in one of our last shows, which is an excellent way of measuring our wellness buffer. If you want to learn about oxygen utilization, go to drsaputo.com, put that in the search box, and up will come a video that we just made that talks about it. With the bioenergy test. It's a bioenergy test that I think is important for everybody to do because it's an affordable way to find out how healthy are you. 
important aspect of that. Well, another thing that this first impression idea brings to mind is many years ago, probably, I don't know, 25 years ago or so, before we were into integrative health and, and Back when I was using medicine. drugs and technologies as the main yeah, thing. Before yeah. we were into that. And, and and when we were prejudiced about a lot of the alternatives. We and, didn't think we were, but we were. Yeah, we were. And we were about chiropractors too. Oh, I remember that. And now we think they're great. But anyway, we were. And I remember there was a little market. <laughs> oh, here that it was comes. <laughs> a little market near where we lived. I'm going to pay and for we this had a, We had a friend that came to stay with us from out of town. And he and his wife were really into healthy food and organic food and all that and they didn't want to eat anything we had we had to go to this little market yeah this is in the mid 80s and and here's this chiropractor sitting by the door with a little table and he's <laughs> taking blood pressures right and you thought you were going to just give him a bad time <laughs> and did. what happened boy did he make me eat my words it was great <laughs> <laughs> i went in there to kind of bother him a little bit but it, he knew what he was doing it was that simple and what was interesting is the very next day i was in his office getting x-rays of my spine because I had a little bit of back pain, and the son of a gun made me better. <laughs> so it and you changed came home my and you imprint. You told me you have to go see this yeah, guy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting how things like that change. And now he's working think. at your office, so. right? We work together. <laughs> he is a fantastic chiropractor and a really good person. Well, another thing about looks being deceiving, you know, first of all, is it's like. When do we know that we can trust our intuition? You know, when is our intuition right or mm. when is it wrong? And I was thinking how looks can be so deceiving. And for some reason, I was thinking of Jeffrey Dahmer. Oh, right. And he was a good-looking guy, but he was so crazy. He was a serial killer. He was a cannibal. He did horrible things. Right. But, you know, there are people that are sociopaths and people that are abusers that oh. put on a wonderful front. Uh-huh. And it's hard for people to know when yeah. they meet them that there could be something wrong with them. Well, we get stuck on our first impressions of a certain kind of look for a person. And then we apply that to everything we see. And it's the same way with a lot of things in research as well. We, we form a certain opinion about something and say that that's the way it is. And then when somebody tries to tell you something different or presents a new story, there's a certain kind of resistance because you want to you want to stick with your first impression. You want to be able to trust your intuition. And yet a lot of the time it's not right. So a lot of the time we learn the hard way. But it's also, according to this article, they were talking about how like online dating and for job interviews and oh, yeah. all those sort of things, it's much more important to meet somebody in person than it is just just from a picture or just from a video or just from talking to them. I think all those things come into play. It's good to, to meet somebody in person and, you know, shake their hand as well as maybe doing some of the the other things as well as far as a job interview. Oh, I think that's right. And I, I think what we, wanted, what we want uh, is to connect with people and then we forget about the appearance that they have or a, a certain kind of... But if people make a quick physical judgment, then that's, that's based more, in, more on the appearance. It, yeah. But if they take time, then it's more about the information. Well, so beware of first impressions. And I'll go back. My first impression of you, dear, was wonderful. Oh, thank you. Well, I thought you were cute. All right. <laughs> you listen to Prescriptions for Health. I'm, do- I'm the cute Dr. Lynn Saputo <laughs> here with Nurse Vicki. It's time for Vicki's first 2020 tip on beware of commercial sunscreens. And when we come back, we're talking about what vitamin increases survival.
Beware of commercial sunscreens that contain toxic chemicals like the PABA, the cinnamates, oxybenzone, and there's other toxins. And they can react with the sun's rays, creating free radicals, which may actually increase the risk of skin cancer. Wow. So the very thing we're trying to prevent can be caused by some of these sunscreens. Yes, and retinal palmitate, it's a common ingredient that's been found to cause cancerous tumors on rats when they put it on them in the sun. So you might say, well, so what am I supposed to do? Well, use natural organic products because commercial sunscreens absorb the UV rays and they create those free radicals and they can disrupt hormones. They act like estrogen. They can increase human breast cancer cells. Now, these commercial sunscreens can be especially dangerous when exposed to the sun and or they become inactive when exposed to the sun. Hmm. <laughs> this sounds crazy, doesn't it? it? both ways. So stay away from products also that contain nanoparticles and look for the ones that say non-nanoized or no nanoparticles because nanoparticles pass through the blood-brain barrier and they can end up in our brain. And they're often used to, to make the products smooth and, and not white and um, the safe products actually use different healthy ingredients to achieve the same effect hmm. safely. We need 20 minutes a day of sun unprotected to make a healthy amount of vitamin D. And the time of day might surprise you. It's 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. when the angle of the sun's rays are best for making the vitamin D. And it's recommended that dark-skinned people get at least three times as much sun for healthy levels of their vitamin D. Now, more than 20 minutes in the sun requires UVA and UVB protection. And the commercial brands offer UVB protection and they might protect us from burning, but not from the skin cancer. And the natural organic products with the zinc oxide, which is the safest option and protects from skin cancer and accelerated aging, along with other healthy ingredients. I wish I'd known all this when I was young oh, and really? baking in the sun. Right. So go to Vicky's Corner. Huh? <laughs> you can get this information. Um, such as they 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 put other healthy ingredients with it like emu oil and vitamin C and green tea and rosemary and lavender and there's other ones that the different companies use that offer the UVA and the UVB protection and they're considered full spectrum protection. They mostly reflect and scatter the sun's harmful rays. So it's not necessary to wear a sunscreen with more than an SPF of 20 or 30 because more than that is basically marketing competition. More. Right. Most dermatologists and estheticians encourage wearing commercial sunscreens at all times. So go for the natural organic sunscreens and not all the time. Remember that 20-minute thing. My favorites personally that are on our website are Marie Veronique uh, mm -hmm. and also Anne-Marie Gianni. And there's another one called Cabana. Now, um, they... they Check them out on our website under Vicky's Corner and Vicky's Safe Skincare Product List. And if you 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 want to wear a full spectrum safe product when you're out in the sun longer than 20 minutes, unless you're dark skinned, and then after about an hour. Perfect. Good advice. So don't be afraid to get out and have some fun in the sun. Exactly. And the sunshine vitamin D is essential for our good health. Right. I think the dermatologists have led us astray there. You may prevent certain kinds of cancer. Uh, by putting sunscreen on your face, certainly the skin cancers. But when it comes to other cancers, it's another story. If you don't get enough vitamin D, you're actually at a higher risk for it. 
Exactly. We already know that vitamin D can help prevent cancer. And now a study shows if you already have cancer, that vitamin D may in fact increase your survival rate as well as promote longer remissions if you have the cancer. And another new study from Northwestern shows that aggressive prostate cancer has become so prevalent in men with vitamin D deficiency that all men should have their vitamin D levels checked annually. all men and all women too. I mean, because it prevents other kinds of cancers too. I mean, you're looking at, at things like breast cancer, colorectal cancer, lymphomas in particular, but other cancers as well it may not be quite as powerful an effect, but lung cancers and stomach cancers and prostate and leukemia and melanoma are all doing better uh, if you have a higher level of vitamin D. In fact, what they show is that for every 10 points of an increase in a scale where normal is from 30 to 100, for every 10-point increase, you'd increase the survival 4%. Uh, so it's important that we the have study, vitamin D. Yeah, the study here says that vitamin D levels, um, if if they're low, it can increase the risk for prostate cancer four to six times. Yeah. You see, you're really looking at something. And men have an increased risk for prostate cancer anyway. What's that rule about when you hit 50? Your, your risk for getting it is about 50%. And when you're 70, it's about 70%. And when you're 90, it's about 90%. And then if you have other kinds of things, you know, age isn't the only thing that's a risk factor. Family history is weak, uh, but it, but it's, there is some increase in risk. Uh, your genetic makeup, for example, if as a male you have the BRCA gene defect, your risk goes up just like it does in women for oh, DCIS. Yeah, and invasive cancers. Diet, if you have a, a low vegetable and fruit diet and a high fat diet, the risks go up. But if you add essential fatty acids like flaxseed oil, it goes down. If you're overweight or you smoke or you have chronic infections, the, we, the, the connections are weak but, but still positive. So there are a lot of things you need to know, and a lot of it boils down to what? Lifestyle. And an important, lifestyle. an important thing is to get the vitamin D in here. Right. Well, that's right. This was published in the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism in April of this year, 2014. And they looked at 17,000 cancer patients. And what they found in, uh, in 25 separate studies, which this was a meta-analysis, after they measured vitamin D levels in, in cancer patients at the time of diagnosis and tracked them over the years, they did a lot better if their vitamin D levels were higher. So it's really important to make sure that you've got enough vitamin D in your system. You know, I really think that sunscreen may be to blame for some of this vitamin D Oh, there's deficiency no, there's, epidemic. There's no question. There may be fewer squamous cell and basal cell cancers, but it's not going to affect uh, your melanomas. It's not going to affect all these other cancers we're talking about. In fact, it's protective. I know I was talking to Dr. Prendergast, uh, endocrinologist in the South Bay in California, uh, a few years ago, and he told me about a patient who had lung cancer, and he suggested that this person take a little bit of a little bit more vitamin D. I think his level was low. And uh, as it turned out, the patient was taking a lot more than what uh, Dr. Prendergast recommended. He said he was taking 50,000 units a day. And I'm not recommending this. I'm just telling you a story. And he said that person would come back every year to get a refill. And he had advanced lung cancer at the time he first started it. The cancer was gone. Really? It makes you wonder because you know that vitamin D does something to cause uh, cells to mature in a healthy way. It's called cellular differentiation. So instead of moving towards cancer, it moves towards repair. 
And that's why for people who have lung disease, uh, like asthma or uh, other problems where there's inflammation COPD. in the lung, yeah, in, in those settings, uh, it's good to get, make sure there's enough vitamin D. And the same thing with the intestinal tract. You cannot heal an intestinal tract if you don't have adequate levels of vitamin D. So a lot of people have the so-called leaky gut syndrome or IBS or worse inflammatory bowel disease. And doctors don't think as a rule about using vitamin D as the first approach. So after you learned this from Dr. Prendergast, did it change the way that you uh, recommended taking vitamin D? Because that's a heck of a lot well, of I vitamin measure, D. I, measure, yeah, I don't recommend 50,000 units a day. I think that can cause problems with calcifications in the body, particularly in your kidney. So it's, it's something I measure in all my patients. I think it's important to know, and I do it every year if there's a question about it, and then adjust it as necessary to make sure that, the, that they're doing as, as well as, as, as they should. So vitamin D is just a part of our nutritional basis that we need to be paying more attention to. And I think it's a good idea for patients to ask the doctors if they do a vitamin D level on them if the doctor doesn't bring it up themselves. Your risk for so many things goes way up, for diabetes, for hypertension, for heart attacks, for strokes, uh, for cancers of various types, uh, and, and many other things. You simply cannot be well with low levels of vitamin D. And since the only time you can get vitamin D is between 12 and 2, and then really only in the spring, summer, and fall, you don't get any in the wintertime, if your vitamin D levels are low, you've got a problem. So we should be paying attention to this so that we know what our level is and try to have as, as good a chance to stay healthy as maybe, we can. Maybe take a supplement. Well, yes, that's the next best thing to do, but nothing is as good as sunlight. Okay, it's time for a network station break. You're listening to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Len Saputo here with Nurse Vicki, and we'll be right back. Prescriptions for Health Radio, and we'll be talking about why is your ability to get in and out of a chair an important aspect of your health? Into prescriptions for health. I'm Dr. Lynn Saputo here with Nurse Vicki. We've known from many studies over the years that exercise can prevent disease and extend life in the young and the old alike. Now we have the data on middle-aged people. Now researchers have found specific tests that can predict the risk for developing cancer and, and uh, cardiovascular disease and all-cause mortality in midlife, and they have the answers for living a long and healthy life. Yeah, this is really, it's it's something we in, intuitively know. I mean, if it works in older people, it works in younger people, why wouldn't it work in middle-aged people? Because what are we looking at here? Is we're looking at the ability of our body to make energy, to make ATP. It's the gasoline of the body is ATP. And the way we use oxygen to make energy is what this is all about. If we're in really good health and we're conditioned, our mitochondria, which are those little energy packets that live in our cells that make up about 10 to 15 pounds of our weight, are like the battery that runs the body. And if we don't get that body or that battery stimulated so that it can make ATP very effectively and efficiently by using oxygen well, all these other things we're talking about start to happen. 
and you can measure them by doing the tests that these people uh, did that was published in the British Medical Journal in April of 2014. And I thought it was kind of interesting. It seems pretty simple, mm-hmm. but just stop and really think about each thing. Like if your balance is off, mm-hmm. you know how so often people talk about the elderly need to do exercises to learn how to balance. Well, they have a lot of falls. If, yeah, because they fall and, and they, they, they break a hip and they can throw a clot and it can kill oh, them. Oh, they may be toast. Uh, probably twenty percent of people who fracture a hip are in deep bucky. And getting in and out of a chair, uh, how the rate difficult at which you that can do is. It. Yeah, the speed at which you get out of a chair, the grip strength that you have and the balance that you have correlate very accurately with your risk for dying. Well, when you think about it, because if your grip is weak, you're probably kind of weak. It's a good measurement of, course, of you, overall strength. And the other thing that happens, I think, is that when you have these things like your balance and difficulty getting up and down and, and, and a weak grip, mm-hmm. you're probably not exercising very much. Oh, that's definitely most of the time that's what's happening. Your body is a marvelous machine <clears throat> from this perspective because it's able to adapt so that if you expect more from it, your body will rev itself up. Your mitochondria will begin to multiply. You'll be able to utilize oxygen more efficiently. You'll be able to make ATP, that energy currency of the cell, a lot more easily, and there'll be more of it. And your chances of staying well and of of protecting against diseases developing are far better. Yeah, because as we age, things happen. You know, you get an ache here and a pain there. In fact, there's that saying... About if you wake up over 60 and you don't hurt someplace, you're dead. <laughs> you may be in heaven or wherever <laughs> you're going. That's right. But um, they, they showed that these symptoms with the balance, the chair thing, and the, and the weak grip, it can limit your survival within the next 13 years. Well, they measured. This was a 13-year study, so that's what they followed. All these people at the, at, in this study, uh, this came out of uh, London at the University College London, and uh, they took people that were 53 years old and followed them for 13 years to until they were 66. They had 5,000 people there. And what they found was most of them died of cancer, 88 died of, of cancer. Another 47 died of cardiovascular disease. And the rest of the 177 deaths were from a, a wide range of, of conditions. But there's a lot you can do to prevent those things from happening because exercise does so many good things. But see, one of the problems that I'm seeing here is that, like, if somebody even has, like, say, osteoarthritis of the knee, mm-hmm. they're not going to be exercising much. as much. Well, you have to you know? adapt. You so know? now they've got this disability risk factor that can shorten their lifespan. Well, you've got to be smart about how you do that. I'll use myself in a, as an example. Playing singles in tennis now is getting hard for me because my back hurts and I've got a problem with my other hip now, a little osteoarthritis there. So what I will do is play that because I really enjoy it, but at a much different pace, a lot less activity if I can stand it. But if I can't, I have to adapt. So maybe I'll start riding a bike because that's easier on the hip and on the back, and maybe that'll keep me fit. And I think a lot of people who aren't doing much exercise, all they got to do is bump it up a little bit. They're going to get a lot more benefit and longevity with better quality of life. Well, even like with this article, it doesn't say you have to do heavy-duty exercise. It says if you can participate in some light-intensity physical activity, it will decrease their chance of developing a disability and increase their chances for a long and healthy life. Right. Well, look at those people that were 53 
who couldn't do any of these uh, uh, tests that we have with grip strength, chair uh, rise speed, and standing balance successfully, couldn't do it, their risk of dying over the next 13 years was 12 times higher than the people who could do those things. Well, that's pretty significant. This ought to encourage people to get up and move around. Well, it tells you the story. You know, we've had studies for years that show that even the couch potato who gets up and does one hour of exercise a week is better off in terms of quality of life and length of life if uh, if they just do that. Well, I also remember that we reported on a study saying that it wasn't enough just to do some exercise and then spend the rest of the day lying around. Well, you have to too. keep moving, well, doing other things. Yeah, well, those people who do some exercise or hard exercise are going to do a lot better than that couch potato. Exactly. But those people who exercise, if they have a sedentary job the rest of the day, they don't do as well as those people who do the same amount of exercise but don't sit you know, in front of a, a computer screen for the next day or 12 hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so th- that's a good point. So, Well, exercise is certainly important. And you know what's a good idea is to th- think about what you enjoy doing, you know? Exactly. Don't because make it work. Because there's so many opportunities out there for different types of exercise. Mm-hmm. There's everything from Zumba and aerobics oh, yeah. and Pilates. Sure, and, or a sport of some kind. Yeah, there's all that. Um, See, if you told me to go to the gym, I'd say, nah, I'm, I'm not going to do that no matter what because I just hate going to the gym. That's just my preference. But if you told me I couldn't play tennis today or I couldn't ride my bike today, I'd go, why not? Because that's something that I want to do. And that motivates me to get out there, and it's good for me in so many ways. And we know that exercise builds those endorphins up that make you feel good. It's a way that we detoxify by sweating. Uh, it, it makes our mitochondria multiply so we can make more energy. Our resistance to illness uh, is less. Even if we have cancer, if we exercise more, we do a lot better in terms of survival. And dance is a great kind of exercise. Look at Dancing with the Stars. They all lose weight on that show from from all the (laughs) dancing that they do. But I mean, you can't, I'm not saying that everybody can do that kind of dancing. But I think personally, I'm really enjoying doing Zumba because Uh it's, to fun music and it gets you to want to move and so forth. Mm-hmm. But walking, you know, if you, you especially you if can. you can find a friend. The more you do, the better. Up to a certain point, I don't suggest you, you know, run 75 miles in a day or even do a, a marathon or even a half a marathon. But I think if you do hard physical activity, that's what stimulates your body the most to respond. But all we're and saying adapt. here is all they need is light intensity physical activity. Well, that'll that's decrease the, their chance of developing a disability. Well, light exercise indeed is good. Just hard any exercise. exercise. Do what you can do. The more you do, the better, and the harder, the better as well. As long as you don't get yeah, hurt, and find a way to get yourself to do it. So, if you need to go with somebody, if you need to sign up for something, whatever it is yeah. that that'll get you to do it. Do it with a friend. You know, anything that makes it social or gets you engaged. Like I said, if you told me to to not play tennis or ride a bike today, I'd be upset because I really look forward to that and I feel good when I do it. If you told me to go to the gym, I'd say, yeah, well, I'm, uh, maybe I'll check into it sometime. Well, you know, I love to horseback ride, but I think I get more exercise getting the horses ready <laughs> than I do when I'm actually riding the horse. Or how about getting off and, uh, on and off the horse as <laughs> yeah. you're opening and closing gates? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, that's right. So the whole business about exercise is something not to, not to assume that uh, 
isn't going to do you good because it's the probably the most important thing you can to fight aging. It's the most powerful anti-aging medicine that we have. I think stretching is helpful too. Well, it to can keep be. yourself limber. A lot of people recommend that. You're listening to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Len Saputi here with Nurse Vicky, and it's time for Nurse Vicky's final 2020 tip on things to stop doing to yourself. <laughs> that ought to be interesting. <laughs> and when we come back, we'll be talking about what can we learn from analyzing earwax. <laughs> what are we coming to? <laughs> and what is more important than blood sugar in predicting complications of type 2 diabetes? That might surprise you. Things to stop doing to yourself. Stop trying to compete against everybody else. Don't worry about what others are doing better than you. Concentrate on beating your own record. Success is a battle between you and yourself only. Good point. You know, there's a picture here of this guy that's uh, an amputee, and he's kneeling next to his wheelchair proposing to his fiance. <laughs> that's great. Stop being jealous of others. Jealousy is the art of counting someone else's blessings instead of your own. <laughs> right on. Count your own. <laughs> Stop complaining and feeling sorry for yourself, but reflect back on those negative curveballs thrown at you in the past because often you'll see that eventually they led you to a better place, person, state of mind, or situation. Hard to do, but quite right. You know, stop holding grudges and, and let go and find peace and liberate yourself and remember about forgiveness because it's for you too. And you, if you must forgive yourself, then you have to move on and try to do better next time. Stop wasting time explaining yourself. Your friends don't need it. Your enemies won't believe it anyway. That's true. So just do what you know in your heart is right. Here's another stop. Stop doing the same things over and over without taking a break. The time to take a deep breath is when you don't have time for it. If you keep doing what you're doing, you'll keep getting what you're getting. Sometimes you need to distance yourself to see things clearly. Right. Learn from your mistakes. And stop overlooking the beauty of small moments. Enjoy the little things because one day you may look back and discover that they were the big things. Mm. Stop trying to make things perfect. The real world doesn't reward perfectionists. It rewards people who get things done. Mm. Stop following the path of least resistance. Life is not easy, especially when you plan on achieving something worthwhile. Don't take the easy way out. Do something extraordinary. Stop acting like everything is fine if it isn't. <laughs> you don't always have to pretend to be strong, and there's no need to constantly prove that everything's going well. Cry if you need to. It's healthy to shed your tears. The sooner you do, the sooner you'll be able to smile again. And stop blaming others for your troubles. Take responsibility for your own life. When you blame others, you deny responsibility. You give others power over that part of your life. It's true. Stop trying to be everything to everyone. Doing so is impossible. And trying will only burn you out. <laughs> But making one person smile can change the world. Maybe not the whole world, but their world. So yeah. narrow your focus. That's right. Well, it reminds me of what love is about. Love is about making someone else happy. It's not all about us. And a lot of the time, a lot of things you talked about there were about how we respond to other people's statements or positions or the way they, they tend to make us feel. And what we have to remember is if we are influenced by a fool who is saying things that aren't true, 
if it influences our behavior and how we feel about ourselves, we become the fool. Yeah. Well, stop worrying so much. Worry will not strip tomorrow of its burdens. It'll strip today of its joy. Mm, Isn't that the truth? And it doesn't change anything. No, it sure doesn't. Stop focusing on what you don't want to happen. Focus on what you do want to happen. Positive thinking is at the forefront of every great success story. Sure. If you can see it, then you can follow the, the pathway. If you can't see it, you got a problem. Okay. Last but not least, the best thing to do is just remember each day to appreciate and reflect a bit, even if it's only a few minutes. So just remember every day to appreciate and reflect on the positive things. Yeah, there are a lot of positive things. And we too often get influenced by things that make us feel bad that are negative or don't serve any useful purpose. Good points, Vicki. Thank you. Earwax. Oh, there's a topic. How did we get into that? Oh, uh, you know, if you got too much, you might have trouble hearing. But Well, I see people in my office who are blocked all the time. And some people make a lot of wax and some people don't. It turns out they make different kinds, huh? Yep. Well, it's another way to predict longevity. (laughs) Whoever thought about earwax, also known as cerumen, as having an odor that may be helpful in the diagnosis of disease. Think about it. Our bodies produce a lot of secretions that can convey information about our health status. And the odors of our secretions can tell us quite a bit from underarm odors to our breath to our urine, tears, stool, skin, and noses. Well, as it should, because that's, <laughs> it reflects what we're made of. And, mm-hmm. and that comes out, you know, a lot of the detoxification process is through these mediums. So if we have certain things that are excreted, uh, we, can def- we can measure what they are. And in certain conditions, we see the most surprising things. Like take the example of the sniffing dogs <laughs> who, lo- who can diagnose breast cancer. Uh, it, I mean, that's a, and it's fairly accurate. They're right like 80% of the time. Or look at the way we can do an analysis with grass chromo- of, of uh, gas chromatography uh, on the breath or on a lot of things that we secrete, including earwax. Well, it's common to have tests for the sco- stool and for the urine, mm-hmm. but not so much for tears and not so much for skin. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess if you had a problem, maybe they'd scrape something out of your nose or... Well, you can scrape things, I mean, out of the floor of the mouth. But if you want to measure magnesium levels, uh, you can, you can get a, a chemical assessment of what's inside the cell of magnesium. And if you're looking at, at sweat, and a lot of things come out in sweat that reflect detoxification and, uh, and tell us a lot about our health. So that earwax is being analyzed by people. I mean, the people at the University of Pennsylvania Medical Center uh, published in the Journal of Chromatography this study of what earwax is. You know, it's a combination of secretions from sebaceous glands and sweat glands. And all, all they really found is it's different in different people who are healthy, which is also related to our genes. Because the genetics that we have determine whether we make one of two different kinds of wax, one being a, a wet yellow-brown wax and the other being a dry white. Why it's different, in part, is related to our genes. And they did this on, on studies of different ethnic groups, too. They looked at Caucasians and East Asians. And they found they all had the same uh, number of volatile organic compounds that came off when they analyzed uh, earwax. There were about 12 of them. And uh, they also found that the amounts that were made by different races were different. So it, it's all really the tip of the iceberg that's telling us that we can learn things about different 
things that we excrete. You can examine gallbladder secretions or intestinal secretions or uh, things from your nose or uh, from uh, your breath or your urine. And it's all got information packed in it. And we learn enough about it, we'll find ways to actually do something to use that information in a more useful way. Well, I was thinking because this has like, some fat quality to it. Yeah, it does. A fatty nature to yeah, it. The sebaceous and, glands put out fatty things. And toxins are stored in our fat. Another so. thing to be looked at. If there's enough, and the question is, is it is it secreted into those things? So for the case of cerumen or earwax, we have a lot to learn. And it's interesting that this study came out, and of course they they use it in a way that isn't really helpful for anything in, in, in practical medicine. But it, it sets us on the track of looking at things like this photo, photo uh, spectrophotometer approach to analyzing the gases we exhale or what's in the urine or what's in the stool. We learn a lot from that today in our clinical practice. Well, we have lots of toxins in our environment. And mm-hmm. said one of the things that it did was to reflect environmental exposures and diseases. Yeah, I think that's right. Okay, so that's probably enough on earwax. <laughs> Maybe that... too much on earwax. <laughs> but uh, it's kind of a fascinating topic just because it's so so interesting and unique. We don't think about it much. Well, they say that it's not good to clean it all out. I guess our bodies have reasons for doing the things that they do. But... Well, most of the time we haven't got a clue what. I mean, look at the appendix. For so long we just went in there and took it out if we're there anyway, doing what's called an incidental appendectomy because we had no idea what the gland did. Now that we know what it is, we made big mistakes because we need our appendix uh, for a lot of interesting things. If you want to learn more about it, go to drsabuda.com and put appendix in the search box and up will come some stories that will tell you about what the value of the appendix is. So what do you think of when you think of diabetes? Diabetes, diabetes type 2 or diabetes mellitus, it's the same thing. A finger stick to determine blood sugar levels? Well, diabetes is a lot more than blood sugar control, and there's been a paradigm shift in treating treatment priorities with new guidelines by the American and the European Diabetic Associations. A recent editorial reprioritizes treatment goals conveying that glycemic control is no longer the primary intervention. Isn't that interesting? After all these years, we thought tight blood sugar control is the... The absolutely most important thing to do in a diabetic. Well, diabetes is a major cause of heart disease and stroke and blindness, and this requires a shift in thinking away from glucose reduction as the most important factor uh, to prevent the um, The complications of diabetes. All right, so what we're looking at is something that was published in American Family Physician in February 2014 from Tufts University School of Medicine. And what they concluded was is there were five different factors uh, that were really important in managing diabetes to keep the complication rate low. And indeed, glucose control is there, but it's the fifth most important. So what are the other four? Smoking. If you smoke and you're a diabetic, that's like putting kerosene on a, or gasoline on a fire. It's going to make that, it flare. And isn't that interesting? I never really heard of that association Oh, before. it's huge. And of course, we know that, that it's not good for your heart. And it's not good for your blood vessels. It's going to increase cardio... I mean, it's going to increase atherosclerosis. So you're going to be at risk for heart attacks and strokes and kidney disease in spades if you smoke because there are two risk factors put together that are synergistic. And really what diabetes is is a premature arterial sclerosis. Well, that's part of it, the way it reflects itself. It's a disease that has to do with blood sugar 
okay, not being uh, able to be managed properly that leads to the development of arteriosclerosis, arteriosclerotic changes in the eyes, in the, in the heart, in the kidneys, in the nerves, uh, in, in lots of places. So smoking does that too, and that's really important. Then we look at other things like blood pressure control. That was the second most important thing. If your blood pressure is high, and people with diabetes don't necessarily have hypertension, if they have advanced kidney disease, they will uh, most of the time. But if they have hypertension and they don't have kidney disease, it becomes a really important thing to control that, again, is more important than blood sugar control. And then they talk about metformin. That's the one drug that I recommend for the treatment of type 2 diabetes. Uh, and it's a safe way compared to the other medicines that are used to treat for diabetes. The sulfonylurea drugs, of which there are many and several generations of, increase the risk for heart attack and stroke. And so, and it's not like it's a small amount. It's substantial. So why in the world would you want to use a drug that causes the side effects you're trying to prevent? And then you look at the glitazone drugs, the drugs such as Avandia, which is out there that's getting a terrible bad rap as it deserves, uh, or the, the other two uh, uh, that are out there as well. Uh, that are supposed to cause bladder cancer. Glucophage? No, no. Glucophage is what uh, uh, metformin is. Oh, that's the other name for it. That's another name oh, for okay. it. okay. So I'm talking about the glitazone drugs, which is Actos and Avandia and Resilin. Oh, the now, ones we hear on TV advertising. Yeah, well, Resilin no more. It was taken off the market a, a good while ago because it causes problems uh, uh, with with these with liver failure. And so a lot of liver transplants and people dying from liver failure. So it was taken off the market. So metformin increases the effectiveness of the insulin. Yeah, it, it makes insulin more sensitive, more effective. And it, and it generally is tolerated pretty well, but some people can't because they get things like diarrhea from it. So those are the problems. Uh, the cholesterol. With that. Well, cholesterol is important to control if it's if it's a problem, especially in a diabetic, because we know there that it increases the rate at which we'll develop arteriosclerosis. But keep in mind that if you don't have a problem with diabetes and you're taking a cholesterol-lowering drug, a statin, it increases your risk of getting diabetes. <laughs> so it becomes a problem. And look at the antihypertensive treatment. You're using, for example, the diuretics, which cause high cholesterol, increase the risk for gout, uh, and put you at risk for a developing type 2 diabetes. So working to co control blood sugar is important, but not as important as addressing these other risk factors. That's basically what this says. And we're out of time, so I want to remind you that we'll be back to talk about what's new in the news and health the first and third Mondays of every month on PRN.FM and DrSabuta.com. If you enjoyed today's radio show and you'd like to have more information on the topics we discussed in video and free access to more than 2,500 audio and video files, click on Health Headlines on the DrSaputo.com homepage. And remember, a healthy lifestyle is the most powerful healer in the universe, so if you want to be well, pay attention to the style in which you live your life. All right. Tune in next time. Tune in next time.